Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome. Okay, I think we are. I've got my audio here. Thanks for the awesome processional tonight. So we had a we had a we had, I, I had a military escort in through Bree from the South Gate all the way to the lower hall here by the uh, courtesy of the Sons of Numenor kinship. Thank you guys. They're all looking very dapper in their black and white uniforms here this evening. Uh, thanks very much. So, uh, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, very glad to uh, return here after a week off. I was on vacation with my family last week, and I am super glad that I did not attempt to do a broadcast because my internet was just awful uh, where I was. So uh, that was uh, uh, that was it was it was definitely for the best that we didn't attempt that. So um, tonight we are returning, and indeed we are going to complete chapter two and rashly move on uh to chapter three that is the humble goal uh for the evening here this evening um so um let's um let's get to it here i'm almost like forgetting how to make i, I want to make sure i'm remembering how to do everything and i've got everything mo- uh, working correctly i think i have all my correct windows open so that's good don't forget those of you who are uh, still relatively new uh, if you want to participate if you want to if you want to get text chat to me i can see um uh, chat in the Twitch channel, but I can't promise to follow it all the time. Um, uh, if there's, but we have a, a, a text channel in our Discord channel, the link to which should be posted uh, there on Twitch. Um, you, you should be able to get into the the, uh, the the text channel called Laura Hall Questions for Corey, and I will be able to get that and follow along with you uh, as we go. So, all right. Um, Andrew is fire. The barbecue in Texas was awesome. That was, uh, uh, that was, that was great. I, I was visiting, I went to Dallas, Fort Worth for the first time. Uh, spent most of my time in Fort Worth actually, uh, last weekend. Um, which is why I wasn't able to do the, the Griffith stream before last, uh, my first, uh, trip to, well, second time I've ever been to Texas. First time in a long time. Uh, and it was great. So, um, okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, uh, Galandar says, uh, at one chapter, uh, a month, We'll be ready for the appendices in 2022, possibly, possibly. We'll see. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if we'll go end up going quite that uh, quite that fast, but uh, but we'll end up we'll end up seeing. Um, but yeah, no, I have decided that I am not going to be in a hurry. Uh, <laughs> I see. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, um, I am. Uh, uh, my. my so yet you'll notice I came back from the north with the beginnings of a little beard here. Uh, my I've been married for almost twenty years. Uh, we are twentieth anniversary is later this year, and uh, my wife for the first time ever gave me permission to grow a beard. So I was like, okay, all right, I'll try to grow a beard. So there we are. Uh, <laughs> so, all right, let us get started now tonight. Since we missed last week, we had two weeks of uh, uh, contributions to our discussion board, um, and that so I. I I wanted to make sure to, again, to remind you of that. If you go to um, lotro.mythguard.org, uh, to the discussion boards there, you will see the questions for Narnian section where you can uh, uh, get questions and we will uh, begin to uh, to go through some of these. So I have a, I have a, I have a, 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 a sort of a backlog uh, to go through there. So we will, uh, uh, we'll, 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 
start in uh, on those here right away. Tonight's class I'm calling Plots and Plans uh, as we begin to look at both the plot that is underway among the hobbits and the plans that Gandalf and Frodo make at the beginning of chapter three. Um, so let's, um, uh, let's, oh, so yeah, Grim was asking, uh, uh, why is my name Narnian? Actually, so that is, uh, that is Cinderin. Um, it sounds more Lewis than Tolkien. It's a total coincidence. The, uh, similarity between the name Narnian and, uh, uh, of course the land of Narnia from the Chronicles of Narnia, much as I love C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, total coincidence. Uh, Narnian in Cinderin, uh, it, it's, uh, it's from the, 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 the word meaning story. So like the, the, a rough translation of Narnian from Sindarin into English would be like the story guy, basically. That's why he is named that. Uh, Nyarion, N-Y-A-R-I-O-N, is, uh, is the Quenya version of the same. So on some servers, uh, I'm Narnian and others I'm Nyarion, depending on whether Narnian was available or not. Um, so, um, so that's it. So that's that's where. Uh, so the sorry guy. That's 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 basically what his name means. Um, good question. Good question. Okay. So uh, let's let's look at a few uh, contributions. We have got several contributions from some of our, our our steadiest contributors. Always appreciate hearing from you. Um, uh, Lincoln Alpern had some reflections on uh, Frodo's. Uh, Frodo and Gandalf's conversation here. So, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. So here's the... Uh, so this is uh, Lincoln's question about that passage. The syntax in this passage is very tricky to follow. I always read Gandalf's So Do I to mean I wish it had not happened in my time either, in part because I find it more powerful and in part because of the next part, and so do all who live to see such times. The problem, of course, is that from a Silmarillion perspective, Gandalf talking about how he feels here would be nonsensical because one, as an immortal himself, all of time is his time, and two, he and the other will were sent to Middle-earth specifically to combat the shadow whenever it rears its ugly head. So, right, the odds of Gandalf happening to live during a peaceful period of time in which the shadow would not arise is really not on the cards, right? I mean, if Gandalf is like, oh, yeah, man, I wish I could get out of this, too. You're right, that doesn't seem like it would make much sense, right? The interpretation that Gandalf is talking about Frodo is more plausible than I originally thought. That is, that he's not saying... Uh, Gandalf's not saying, oh yeah, I wish it didn't happen in my time either, but rather Gandalf is saying, I also wish it need not have happened in your time, right? That would be the alternative interpretation of the syntax there. Um, uh, anyway, because in the next sentence he says, that is not for them to decide, suggesting that he may not include himself when he refers to all people who live to see such times. Maybe I'm grasping at straws here, trying to defend my preferred interpretation, but I still find the syntax of Frodo's exclamation and Gandalf's initial response difficult to reconcile with the Gandalf is just talking about Frodo here scenario. And Lincoln, I completely agree with you. It does sound like he's agreeing with the sentiment, right? Not just, I think the same thing about you, but rather, I feel the same way you do. That does, it's very hard, I agree, not to hear so do I in that way. But, as Lincoln says, that leaves us with a discrepancy between this version of Gandalf and his backstory as stated in the Silmarillion. Um, great question. Glad you brought that up. I don't think so, though. Um, my, here's, here are my, my, my thoughts about that. The main thing I would say, based on all the information that we have, the incarnation of the wizards is more complete than I think you're giving it credit for. On the one hand, yes, Gandalf is... Um, uh, Gandalf is... is, is well, I mean, is immortal, 
Right. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that all of time is his time. But I, I, again, I see what you mean. He wasn't born into a dis- distinct part of the time. So yeah, that's true. But um, he is he doesn't have necessarily the full perspective of an immortal person. The incarnation of the wizards is a tricky thing. Okay. Um, and I think it's important to remember that the wizards don't, they're not just embodied. It's not just that they have a body. Like, you know, so we know that the Ainur, uh, can man, you know, the Valar and the Maiar can manifest themselves in physical bodies, right? And remember, if you remember that part, um, uh, in the Silmarillion, it refers to the idea that they can put on and take off bodies like clothes, right? So they have their sort of their spiritual being, and they can clothe it in flesh if they want to appear visibly and physically, um, and then they can take it off again like clothes, right? Um, and just walk in sort of this sort of naked spirituality, right? Invisible uh, to most people. But um, so uh, that's true. However, that's not what the wizards are doing. Right, the wizards are not merely physically manifested spirits. The wizards are incarnate. They they they, they weren't born, right? They, so they, they they don't have moms, right? They, they 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 didn't come out of a womb, but they do have bodies, not just in the regular sense. They're actually incarnate in physical bodies. So when Gandalf dies, um, he doesn't. It's not just that his body is destroyed and he has to go make a new one, right? That's not what happens. He's incarnated in that body and that body dies. And his spirit returns into the West when his body dies. The The, the point of death is a significant one. It's not just a disembodied. This is not just, you know, Gandalf taking off his physical clothes and becoming a naked spirit again. Um, he dies. He is separated from his body in a way which is much more like when a human dies, right? Or even when an elf dies. Uh, we see the same thing again when Saruman dies, at the end of the return of the king, um, when his throat is cut, his body crumbles and his spirit emerges from it and is, of course, blown away by the wind from the west. Um, so anyway, it, the, the point, though, again, is that their whole perspective is different. Their relationship with their bodies is different. They have I mean, like Gandalf has worries and fears. He gets older. Right. Remember, we, we looked at that. Um, we looked at how Gandalf ages. Um, in um, uh, oh, uh, Maven, I think your mic is still on. Just FYI, don't don't want to uh, anything accidentally to happen there. Um, uh, so um, anyway, so yeah, so his 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 he doesn't just have the same perspective that the other spirits have, and I think this is really important because it means that the temptations that the wizards undergo are a different kind of... Te- it's not just, are they going to fall like Sauron fell, right? Or like Melkor fell. Um, their fall is in a different way. In the Unfinished Tales, when Tolkien says that rather remarkable thing that all of the other wizards were a failure, including Radagast, right? That Radagast failed. Um, I have never been really comfortable with that statement that Radagast failed. It doesn't seem to me to hold... Deg- Tolkien's statement about that doesn't make full sense to me. But anyway, what he does say is that he loses track. I mean, he loses his focus. He ceases to concentrate on the task that he's sent. He, he goes native, right? And he just ends up kind of hanging out with the creatures of Middle-earth. Um, that's something, you know, in other words, he kind of loses sight of his goal, of his purpose. That's something that he can do because he is 
incarnated. He can just become acclimated to the world around him. It's a temptation that the wizards are subject to that, like Sauron, wouldn't have been subject to in exactly the same way, because Sauron was never incarnated in the same way. He was a spirit who put on physical form. Um, So, you know, when Sauron's body falls into the abyss uh, with the island of Numenor, what happens to him is not like what happens to Gandalf when Gandalf dies. It's a fundamentally different thing because his relationship with his body is different. Um, So... Um, yeah, Grimm, exactly. One could argue that Gandalf spending time with the hobbits is is him deviating from his purpose. That, indeed, in Unfinished Tales, is the kind of thing that Saruman kind of suggests, when Saruman is giving Gandalf a hard time um, about spending all of his time hanging out with uh, halflings and smoking. Um, but... Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, so, so they, they, they do age, though slowly. Um, they experience fear and pain, and when they die, they really die. Um, but it's... So, so, so this is why... And so in this sense, it's not actually nonsensical for Gandalf to say, so do I. I also wish that it need not have happened in my time, right? Again, like, does he wish for peace? Like, oh, I wish it, uh, by coincidence, the, the shadow hadn't happened to, uh, hadn't happened to arise. No, I mean, again, he's, he's, he's here, but also remember Gandalf was, um, Gandalf was, is, how? Okay. I was, I was about to say unwilling. That's not true. He was willing, but not eager. Um, it's another interesting thing that Tolkien says in Unfinished Tales about the wizards is that Saruman was eager to come over. Gandalf was not eager. Gandalf needed convincing. He didn't want to take that burden on himself. Um, so is there a bit of um, reluctance? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think there is a bit of reluctance. Um, uh but uh, you know, not necessarily wishing that you're you know hoping against hope that he would have a cheerful, pleasant, quiet life. Um, but but yeah. Anyway, um, exactly. Hugo was just thinking the same thing about Aloran not actually being eager uh, to go to Middle Earth. Um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, this is uh, and and this is all tricky, of course. This don't forget as well that this is all Tolkien. You know, all of that stuff, all the Silmarillion stuff, is really sort of retconned material. Um, when Tolkien wrote most of the Silmarillion, um, the wizards were no part of it. Right. I mean, the addition of Gandalf, the integration of Gandalf into the Silmarillion world, is a much later thing. Um, the Wizards are definitely not native uh, to that environment. Um, anyway, yeah. So, okay. Uh, but the, I'm, I'm, Lincoln, I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, another reflection from Lincoln, which I really, uh, which I really appreciated. Um, in the latest episode, I discussed Gandalf's assertion that whatever reason Fro- for that, for whatever reason Frodo was meant to have the ring, it was not for any merit that others do not possess, not for power or wisdom at any rate. One of my favorite lines. Um, and what that line might communicate to Frodo psychologically. Yes, I just love that reassurance. Right? Don't worry, it's not because you're special, right? Because you're totally not. Our culture is awash with stories of characters who are heroes or potential heroes because of the nature or circumstances of their births or because they possess a unique and special trait, which most or all of the population does not possess. These characters may or may not be made into heroes over the course of their stories, but heroism is first and foremost something they were born for. That's not how it is in The Lord of the Rings. The hobbits are aggressively ordinary, Sam even more so than Frodo, as he isn't even special by hobbit standards. And as such, they are stand-ins for the readers. 
and yet they are the ones on whom the fate of the world ultimately rests. They're heroes not because of any merit that others do not possess, but because they stumble into situations where their actions will determine the fates of many, and they rise to the occasion. The message I take away from this is that heroism is not an intrinsic trait, which some people inherently possess and others simply don't. It is rather something that potentially exists in all of us if we ever find ourselves in extraordinary situations. Um, yeah, Lincoln, and this is a th- uh, theme that we're going to come back to a lot, but I think you're absolutely right. Um, think about the whole... Uh, think about the popularity of the, the the superhero genre, right? I mean, that's been booming over the last decade or so, right? I mean, think of the whole... how you know, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe has taken over, right, recently. Uh, you know, it's been... it's And it's great. I love those stories, right? They're great stories. I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Netflix Marvel series. You know, it's, it's great. Um, but, Lincoln, exactly as you say, these are all people who are heroes because they are, in fact, special, right? They, they do have some merit that others do not possess. And, and, and the story, of course, is a very different kind of story, right? That is to say... It's like you know the, the the classic would be the Spider-Man, the famous Spider-Man line, right? You know the uh, um, uh, with great power comes great responsibility, right? That's the kind of the the sub. So 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 Lincoln's right. They they don't necessarily all become heroes. They don't all use their power uh, properly, but they do all have that opportunity intrinsically. You know the 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 drama is given this opportunity to become a hero if they choose to. Are they going to choose to? And are they going to screw it up? And what's going to happen? Right. Um, so, so yes, I agree. The story with the Hobbits is very different. And the thing is, surprisingly to me, a lot of people kind of overlook this. Um, especially people who are only kind of superficially familiar with Tolkien make the assumption or, or draw the kind of rash conclusion that um, this is just... Um, this is just... Uh, uh, you know, this black and white story about great and perfect heroes and, you know, ideally perfect villains, right? Um, And it's not really the case at all. I mean, first of all, of course, the heroes are not all perfect in black and white. Um, Tolkien does a better job than any writer I know of sort of showing the shades of gray and how a good guy trying to do good things for good reasons can end up becoming corrupt and evil. However, um, the thing that people overlook is the hobbits, right? The fact that the whole story, it's not just that the hobbits are the main characters and that they are these sort of ordinary people who don't possess merit that others do not possess, but even more how the whole story is being told from the hobbit point of view, right? I mean, we, we get the Lord of the Rings from three feet off the ground. That's the person. So, of course, Aragorn looks huge, right? Because he is huge. He is, he towers above the hobbits, right? Not only in physical, but in this kind of moral stature. He is heroic in this sense, but even he, right, within his own frame, is not necessarily just one who is um, uh, kind of pre, you know, predestined. He is, through the circumstance of his birth, uh, destined to be a hero, and so in that way, different from the hobbits. Um, though, of course, even he is not like Spider-Man exactly, right? It's not exactly a with great power comes great responsibility kind of situation, initially, anyway. Uh, with Aragorn. Um, but yes, people pay attention to like the characters like Aragorn and Gandalf as, you know, which are these sort of archetypal uh, hero characters and ignore the fact that the whole frame of the story is from the point of view uh, of the hobbits. And there really is a very great celebration of 
you know, small hands doing th- uh, the great things because they must, right? Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, so Link and I agree. I think that that's um, uh, yeah, yeah. Good. Tony Mead was talking about hearing uh, Doctor Shippy doing a talk about this and how the fact that Frodo is not made to be a hero makes him a thoroughly modern hero instead of an archetype uh, that comics and myths use. Yes, and Tony, and that's pretty striking. I mean, Tolkien is wonderful at using archetypes um, and appealing to those kind of mythic roles. Um, but yes, I agree. There is something which is much more distinctly modern about the idea of the the Hobbit hero. Um, yeah, yeah, good. And, um, yes, uh, uh, Irindis. Is your name uh, designed to evoke uh, uh, Irendis, the uh, Numenorian woman, uh, the queen of Alderion? Um, anyway, um, but yes, uh, Irindis points out that, uh, uh, you know, it's easy to overlook that the characters are constantly making choices. Yes, exactly. Even the great characters are constantly making choices, and that's a and that's a it's something. Of course, we're going to be focusing on uh, as we go as we go through. But um, uh, anyway, yeah. Okay, so let's uh, let's 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 keep going. All right. T. Thurston says, I read The Lord of the Rings many times before I noticed the brief descriptions about the wind direction. The wind was in the south, for instance, or paid any attention to them. As I understand it, this phrase means that the wind was blowing from the south, yes, so that it was probably warm as it came from warmer lands to the south. Tolkien doesn't tell us the wind was warm, but I guess he expects us to know that a south wind is a warm wind. Of course, we'll see that the direction the wind blows is quite important later in the story, but I think there may be some value in noticing the wind as we read, and thinking about what it tells us. I'm not quite sure of the reason for the capitalization of South, though it's consistent, as in Chapter 3, the winds in the West, said Sam, or the West wind was sighing in the branches. Um, I agree, this is the kind of detail, uh, Thurston, that I think is, uh, is is often overlooked, but you can notice if you if you pay attention. And I also agree that it is often significant, whether it's significant for plot reasons, like, of course, the very important south wind that will be blowing uh, during the Battle of Pelennor Field, right? Or uh, whether it's a west wind, right? West winds are often significant. I've already alluded to one, right, when uh, uh, Saruman is killed and his spirit sort of rises from his body and then a west wind comes and disperses the cloud of his spirit and blows it off into the east. That is a pretty significant west wind, I would say. Um, but I can, <laughs> JJ's teasing me for spoilers. Yeah, this is not designed to be... Uh, if you... Uh, let me say it this way, JJ. If you're reading The Lord of the Rings for the very first time when you're going along with this class, and you can bear to read for the first time as slowly as we go in this class without ever reading ahead, that's impressive, I gotta tell you. Um, yeah, <laughs> Gilgunthir, I agree, would absolutely be the longest first read ever, ever. Um, I'm gonna read a couple pages a week and no more. Uh, but anyway, okay. So, um, and the one comment I wanted to throw in about this, Thurston, is I would I, w- I would urge caution, though. Um, that is one temptation, especially once one begins to sort of think of the significance, especially about things like the West Wind and stuff like that. Um, the there could be a temptation to begin to be thinking in sort of symbolic or allegorical modes. That is to say, to uh, to be thinking, um, 
Okay, yeah, so this is um, uh, this is a symbol, right? You know, they get the west wind and the south. So when he talks about the if there's a north wind in this scene, then it means a particular thing or whatever. Um, I, I, um, um, I don't I would urge caution against that. It, 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 it would be tempting to do that. I can see people being tempted to do that, but I would urge, I would urge caution. It's not, I, it's not normally the way. And here, I mean, I want to speak generally. Many people are very cautious, appropriately very cautious, about reading anything sort of symbolic or allegorical into Tolkien's text because, of course, of Tolkien's instructions about that. He gave very firm instructions about that in the preface, especially to the second edition of The Fellowship of the Ring. He says about how it's not an allegory and don't interpret it allegorically, and, and he's always cordially disliked allegory ever since he grew old and wary enough to, to detect its presence. Um, good Tolkien fans are often very quick to remember that passage and to be resistant to any kind of allegorical reading, and that's good. But of course you have to be careful with that too. Um, he does use allegory. Um, not usually in The Lord of the Rings, um, but he does use it. I mean, like Leaf by Niggle, for instance, is a quite thoroughly allegorical story, for instance. Um, and when he sets himself to doing it, he's not bad at it, actually. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, so... Uh, so yeah, the... Um, uh, the there is allegory. You can't, you know, don't don't let yourself be thinking like he doesn't ever think symbolically. He does think symbolically, but I will say it does not at all seem to me to be a mode that's at all um, sort of natural to him. Um, when he's reaching for a wind, when he's doing a landscape description, right, and he's telling you what direction the wind is blowing from, most of the time, I, I, I it, it is my belief that most of the time he's just picturing the scene and describing a detail of this scene as he pictures it, right? And he's picturing this. He's usually thinking geographically. He thinks in terms of maps. Uh, he thinks in terms of landscape. He was a painter, and he thinks about landscape like a landscape painter thinks about landscape, right? He pictures these things visually in his mind. Um, and that's where all that description comes from, him trying to paint with words uh, this scene that he has very clearly in his mind. So sometimes I believe... Uh, many times, the wind that he describes as blowing is either the kind of wind that he believed would be blowing in that area during that season, or be uh, just sort of the way that he that he sees this scene happening. It's just the way that the the way that the direction the way that 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 the the, the direction of wind is blowing in his picture of it, right? But it doesn't mean that I don't think it's ever symbolic, because I do think that there is a greater symbolic force behind it, often. Not always, but often. So, um, so I do think that it's, uh, that it's sort of appropriate to be, to be thinking like that. Okay, um, all right, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, good, good, um, yeah, Grimm says uh, his descriptions of hiking cross-country are amazingly accurate. You can't ex appreciate the problems and the way it works until you actually try it. Uh, Grimm, I agree, and we're going to actually return to that that level of realism later on. Um, it is really important for you to imagine kind of putting yourself into that position in order really to appreciate uh, his, uh, his, his descriptions. But, okay couple more. A couple things about names. Matt DeForest pointed out the name Thane Paladin, right? Uh, and uh, the sort of, the, what seems to be almost an inside joke uh, in this, um, uh, in that 
term. So thanes are freeholding servants of a king, and that comes from Old English. Paladin comes from the French tradition and are the peers of Charlemagne, Roland being the most famous. They, too, are servants of kings and emperors. Any thoughts on the combining of two titles for royal servants into a single name? Yeah, my primary thought, Matt, is that that's exactly the kind of... um, uh, that's exactly the kind of philological joke that Tolkien often made. Uh, that kind of thing seemed to really amuse him, actually. Um, one other example, of course, another famous example of this, is the fact that almost every single one of the kings of, uh, of Rohan, right there, and if you look the, the entire, from, from, from Eorl the Young on down, um, all of their names mean king or, or, or ruler or leader, right? There's some kind of synonym, uh, of, of, of king. So it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, their names literally translate to king, 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 king. Um, it's fun, right? And again, that's, that's, it's kind not exactly a joke, but kind of a joke. I, I think that he, I, I certainly believe that he was privately amused. So yes, I certainly believe that he was amused by the idea of, um, of, uh, of Thane Paladin. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, and then, uh, T. Thurston also had, uh, was thinking of, uh, similarly, uh, specific, especially about Pippin's name. Um, Peregrine, son of Paladin, took. Uh, my dictionary defines Peregrine as having a tendency to wander from the medieval Latin Peregrinus. I find it interesting that both of these names, Peregrine and Paladin, uh, seem fitting for members of the Took family based on what the Hobbit tells us about Tooks, but I find it surprising that both of these names seem to have Latin roots. So, Okay, so two elements there. Uh, first, I love that observation. Of course, Peregrine, yes, does mean pilgrim. Um, and... Um, uh, so yeah, it it, uh, it 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 does mean um, that. Uh, so yeah, I, but anyway, I love Thurston's observation that you've got both the the wanderlust element, right, and the ruling leadership thane under the king element, right, of the Took line. Both of those things are 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 fitting, as he says, for members of the Took family. That's wonderful. I'd never really thought about it in those terms before, but you're right. In this sense, Peregrine and his dad, Paladin, um, in their names really sort of show the essence of Tookishness, right? Um, but as for the Latin roots, uh, that's another thing that I think can uh, often get exaggerated. It's true that Tolkien preferred good Old English words with Anglo-Saxon roots rather than Latinate roots. Uh, it's also true that he didn't particularly like French and French things, especially French cooking. But uh, th- again, those things can be really exaggerated. You know, uh, there are many times that Tolkien fans will sort of recall that Tolkien greatly preferred Norse mythology to Greco-Roman mythology. Um, and, you know, and that's all true, but don't forget the guy studied classics. I mean, you know, this was a guy who could do extemporaneous Latin or Greek orations. He knew the classics thoroughly, um, and liked them. He didn't dis Latin. He didn't, he didn't hate Latin and all other romance languages. Um, what he didn't like was the Norman conquest, right? He didn't like the way that English got spliced together with, uh, with French. I think if the French had kind of stayed to themselves and not infected the English language, he'd have been fine with them. Um, but, um, anyway, so, so I, 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 I think it's possible to expand that now he, or to, to, to overestimate the, the significance of that. Um, he does use names with Latin roots, but I, and I would also say the hobbits and hobbit names, he tends to be a little bit more frivolous 
frivolous is kind of a harsh word. I don't mean it to be harsh, but um, he he clearly has fun with Hobbit names. I mean, I think that he 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 allows himself to make more jokes with uh, with Hobbit names. Um, so that it doesn't really surprise me much at all that he would use that kind of uh, uh, use those kinds of names uh, for hobbits. I mean, there are hobbit, you know, Fortinbras is you know from Hamlet is is a, is a, a took name. Um, uh, isn't uh, am I remembering correctly? Is it Dodinas? Um, which one of the Arthurian knights is uh, is there in the brandy buck line? I'm forgetting. Whimsical, Tony. You're right. Whimsical is a much better word. Um, I, you know, still kind of frivolous too. But I, 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 I agree with you. I like whimsical better. Um, but uh, anyhow, yeah. So he, he, he. There, there are lots of funny names uh, in the Hobbit family trees. Uh, so that's all. That's all good. Yeah, Fortinbras exactly. Uh, one of everybody's favorites. Okay. Uh, so thanks for those observations on names. Finally, Archimago. This is one that Archimago um, uh, posted a long time ago, and I've been saving this, uh, meaning to come back to this, and we're going to use this as our transition uh, into our actual text tonight. This is our final notes and queries. And Archimago, this was right after we did the first uh, session in Chapter 2, when we were looking at the conversation between uh, Sam and Ted Sandyman. When I think of Sam, the first things that come to mind are his faithfulness and his heroism, but I find it striking that Sam's first starring scene focuses on his imaginative, creative side. Sam's half-chant at the Green Dragon about the elves' departure is marvelous and melancholy, and thus very unhobbit-like. Sam's sigh as he leaves also interests me. Perhaps he is simply annoyed at his failure to interest the local rustics in dragons and elves, but I wonder. I like to think his possibly extemporaneous poem is still on his mind, and the sigh is from a lingering sadness at the thought of the elves leaving Middle-earth. We are told he had more on his mind than gardening. Perhaps he's pondering the next verse of sailing, sailing, sailing. It seems to me that this side of Sam is often overlooked, and Sam the poet-dreamer does not get enough credit. Or am I trying to read too much into this scene? No, Archimago, I don't think you're trying to read too much into this scene, and I agree with you. I think it's very striking that this first glimpse that we get of Sam. And I would say, by the way, this is not just the first glimpse that we get of Sam in the book. This is the very first glimpse ever of Sam. Um, when Tolkien invented the, so the, the character of Sam wasn't in the very first draft. When, when he went through, uh, when he started the story at chapter one and got as far as Rivendell in his first real go through, Sam wasn't in there. Um, it was only when he got to Rivendell and started thinking about revisions that he decided he was going to add Sam Gamgee, write Sam Gamgee in the margin, um, and, and was, and decided to do that. So he was not a first thought. He was a second thought. When he goes back and does the second draft, right? So he gets to Rivendell, stops, starts again, and he, 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 he rewrites the thing to that point. He writes Sam Gamgee into the story, and the first thing he writes is the conversation with Ted Sandyman. And the conversation between Ted, Ted and Sam uh, in The Green Dragon is almost word for it. It's almost identical. Um, like the, the final version of that just emerged um, as soon as Tolkien sat down to write it. So, um, so in that way... 
Archimago, it really is the very first glimpse that anyone ever got of Sam. Tolkien's own first glimpse of Sam is him having that particular debate with Ted Sandyman. And so the wistfulness of his interest in the elves, right, his lamentation over the elves' departure, um, the way in which he is imaginatively engaged with these stories, um, we're going to come back uh, to that uh uh, later on uh, in 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 today, um, but um, uh, but yeah, so interesting. Uh, uh, Wayaloff says that walking home in the evening is also the last glimpse we get of Sam after the elves have gone sailing, sailing, sailing. Yes, it's how the book ends, right? With uh, um, uh, Sam walking home in the evening. I agree. Um, so, Mario, I agree. He does have an innate sense for the mythic. Um, he is, uh, in Archimago's uh, terms, in touch with both the marvelous and the melancholy. Both sides of that are, are very present to him in ways that they obviously are not to other hobbits. And I do think that it's important that we keep in mind. In a sense, this is the foundation of Sam's character, right? This is, what, this is the first thing that we see about him. Um, and it's, I think, easy to forget that. Uh, as we go through, and it's something that I would really like to to keep in mind and to carry on focusing on as we uh, as we move through. But I would say, Archimago, that I think that his sigh is about something else. Let's let's look at that scene because that's where I wanted to start tonight. Anyway, Sam sat silent and said no more. He had a good deal to think about. For one thing. There was a lot to do up in the Bag End Garden, and he would have a busy day tomorrow if the weather cleared. The grass was growing fast. But Sam had more on his mind than gardening. After a while, he sighed and got up and went out. Okay, so that's the sigh that Archimago was referring to. Sam had more on his mind than gardening. Now, does this mean, of course, that he's thinking about elves and the departure of the elves as he was just talking about? I mean, probably he was just thinking about that, right? But, but, I am not sure. I think there may be other things on his mind, right? Um, Notice several points in this paragraph. Things which, by the way, I would never have noticed and did not notice until, like, not just my second read, like my 22nd read of this book, um he had a good deal to think about. So at first it sounds like about the conversation, right? He sat silent and said no more. He had a good deal to think about, right? Well, what are the things that he had to think about? For one thing, there was a lot to do at the Bag End Garden. So he had a, he had, he, he had a lot of gardening to think about, and he would have a busy day tomorrow. The grass was growing fast. So specifically our attention is drawn to the fact that he has to cut the grass. And of course, we know he's going to be cutting the grass outside the window tomorrow when Gandalf and Frodo are having their conversation, right? Um, That's our first kind of transition into the idea. Because Sam has more on his mind than gardening. What else is he thinking about? What else is he sighing about? Um, And I think it's pretty clear that he's thinking about Frodo. We will learn in a few chapters that Sam is part of a conspiracy, and I believe it is the conspiracy uh, that he is thinking about. Um, he is uh, not just going to be cutting the grass at Bag End tomorrow. He is going to be cutting the grass and spying on Mr. Frodo tomorrow. 
which is, of course, exactly what we will see him doing. Remember that paragraph. Okay, here's the end of the conversation between Gandalf and Frodo. But I don't think you need go alone, not if you know of anyone you can trust, and who would be willing to go by your side, and that you would be willing to take into unknown perils. But if you look for a companion, be careful in choosing, and be careful what you say, even to your closest friends. The enemy has many spies and many ways of hearing. I love that description. Anyone you can trust who would be willing to go by your side, that you would be willing to take into unknown perils, right? I don't know. Somebody like that doesn't just, doesn't just pop up out of the grass, right? You've got to make sure you're really looking carefully for, for, that, for that kind of person, right? Where, oh, where could you possibly find an individual like that? Uh, the enemy has many spies and many ways of hearing. Suddenly he stopped as if listening. Frodo became aware that all was very quiet, inside and outside. Gandalf crept to one side of the window. Then, with a dart, he sprang to the sill and thrust a long arm out and downwards. There was a squawk, and up came Sam Gamgee's curly head, hauled by one ear. "'Well, well, bless my beard,' said Gandalf. "'Sam Gamgee, is it? Now what may you be doing?' "'Lord bless you, Mr. Gandalf, sir,' said Sam. "'Nothing. Leastways, I was just trimming the grass border under the window, if you follow me.' He picked up his shears and exhibited them as evidence. "'I don't,' said Gandalf grimly. "'It is some time since I last heard the sound of your shears. "'How long have you been eavesdropping?' Um, Okay. Um, All is very quiet, inside and out. Think about the several different things that are going on in this scene, right? Um, On the one hand, right... um, We've got Gandalf's setup, right? Uh, on the one hand, be cautious, right? You need a companion. It would be good for you to have a companion, but be careful whom you... Make sure it's somebody that you can trust. But but wait, it's not just that you have to pick your companions carefully. You have to be aware of the fact that there might be spies, right? And this idea of, of, of spies in the Shire. I mean, Frodo is... Uh, Notice that, that, like, the hint of paranoia, right? Frodo became aware that all was very quiet inside and outside, right? All of a sudden, this idea of, like, what, spy? Seriously? There might be people spying on me um, in the Shire? Like, I mean, that's just not a thing that he's used to thinking about or worrying about. Remember how, you know, he had this image of, like, the shadow reaching out to the Shire, right? Reaching out to, 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 to close around him. Um, you know, that image that he had of being surrounded by darkness um and then he looked up and was surprised to find that it wasn't dark right this is this is frodo coming to grips with the idea of of the shadow reaching toward the shire right the idea that although everything looks peaceful and lovely in the shire it's not it's not all peaceful and lovely right um and now this is like becoming real to him one more step of uh of of becoming real to him, right? There were spies lurking outside the window. Holy cow! Um, but uh, and then here's Gandalf pulling Sam Gamgee's curly head up by one ear. Um, there was indeed a spy outside his window, right? Um, how long have you been eavesdropping, Gandalf? So Gandalf accuses him of listening on purpose, right? By the way, brief note. Um, this is a, a question I've gotten several times before. Why does Sam say, Lord bless you, Mr. Gandalf, sir? 
right? Um, Lord bless you or Lord bless me is a phrase that Sam uses twice in this scene. Uh, question, isn't that anachronistic? Um, Lord bless you is a Christian expression, right? Um, isn't it anachronistic for Sam to say that? Not exactly. Um, uh, uh, not exactly. Uh I don't think so, anyway. Um, of course, in the Christian context, it is a Christian phrase, and in the Christian context, it means Lord equals God, right? Um, you know, God bless you is what it means, of course. Um, I don't think that's necessarily what it must mean in Sam's mouth, right? Um, the idea that a lower-class hobbit would use an expression, "Lord, the Lord bless you, right, um, doesn't seem to me at all strange we know that they that culturally the hobbits retain memories uh memories which are expressed in in colloquial expressions of the lord of the king right who ruled over them you know and and uh, and the king's laws and everything um you know such expressions as when when the king returns or things like that um this i think is is uh is exactly grim it refers back i believe to the time when there was a numenorean lord ruling the land um that's I, I certainly, I have a very hard time believing that that's just an anachronistic slip that Tolkien missed. Um, he was very sensitive to this and paid very close attention to the uh, expressions that he gives to Sam, so I certainly don't believe um, that, it was a, that, that it was a mistake. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, J.J., presumably the King of Arnor, not the Witch King. Um, I agree. Uh Interesting. Tony Mead says, uh, um, I know it's stepping back and looking ahead a bit, but I was struck this time by the fact that Gandalf opens the window to let in the sun when the talk gets too gloomy and scary, similar to what Gandalf does in Metaselt. Is there an implication of driving away the darkness, both physically and spiritually? Tony, I mean, yeah, it kind of works that way, right? I mean, the idea of Gandalf saying, let's brighten up the room a bit, or even remember the context of the beginning of the conversation, right? Gandalf not, he didn't want to have this conversation in the middle of the night, right? Um, is that a purely symbolic thing? Is there some actual sort of function there, you know, um, I, because, you know, the creatures of the shadow have, in fact, greater power in darkness? Um, you know, we don't really know exactly. Or, uh, yeah, Simon was just thinking exactly the same thing. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, now, so, uh, by the way, it's, I'm not, uh, several of you are, are, are looking ahead to Sam's immediate response, right? Saying that, uh, 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 he hasn't been dropping any eaves, right? Um, uh, you were asking was Sam, you know, uh, I forget who asked a, a, a couple, uh, a couple, uh, comments ago. Um, is Sam like playing dumb? Yeah, he's playing dumb. I believe you know he's pretending he doesn't even know what Gandalf's ta- eavesdropping. Oh, I have no idea what you're talking about. I ain't been dropping no eaves. Um, uh, yes, he's playing dumb, trying to get out of it, right? Um, but of course, Gandalf was like, "Don't be a fool," right? Um, <laughs> that is, don't be a fool to try to take me that way. Don't don't you try to take me for a fool, right? And think I don't know what you mean. Uh, Sarah Lagarde points out, and I think Sarah, that's a that, that's a really wonderful point. Um, she says Sam goes right for the philology uh, with the dropping of the eve, sort of like Bilbo and Gandalf exploring the meanings of good morning uh, and asking pardon upon upon first meeting. Yes, it is nicely, 
reminiscent of that, right? And Gandalf's response is like, we're not doing the good morning stuff here, Sam, right? I'm not going to play that game. This is serious. Uh, Tell me what you were doing. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, So, uh, yeah, JJ, I agree. Sam is not exactly uh, master of super spy level deception. He does not have a cover story prepared, right, uh, when he is actually caught. Um, He won't hurt you, said Frodo, hardly able to keep from laughing, although he was himself startled and rather puzzled. He knows as well as I do that you mean no harm, but just you up and answer his questions straight away. Well, sir, said Sam, dithering a little, I heard a deal that I didn't rightly understand about an enemy, and rings, and Mr. Bilbo, sir, and dragons, and a fiery mountain, and and elves, sir. I listened because I couldn't help myself, if you know what I mean. Lord bless me, sir, but I do love tales of that sort, and I believe them too, whatever Ted may say. Elves, sir, I would dearly love to see them. Couldn't you take me to see elves, sir, when you go? Now notice... A couple things here. First of all, Sam is not as dumb as he's playing here. Um, uh, Frodo has just told him to up and answer Gandalf's questions, plural, straight away. And what were Gandalf's questions? Gandalf asks, what did you hear and why did you listen? Right? Notice what Sam does. Right? Sam answers the first question and dodges the second. He answers what he heard. He doesn't answer exactly why he listened, right? Um, I, he said, I listened because I couldn't help myself, if you know what I mean. He, 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 he does give an answer. Um, but uh, it's, I, I, think it's kind of a, I think it's kind of a dodgy answer, right, Lincoln? Exactly as you say, he, uh, uh, he does keep his deeper cover. He doesn't give the conspiracy away. Um, I think especially in context, you know, when we learn later on about Sam's role in the conspiracy— um, it's clear that he was not ju- that he's not telling the truth here. Um, he didn't just listen because he couldn't help him. So he didn't just happen to be cutting the lawn outside the window, and uh, uh, and 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 you know overheard. And and by the way, I, I I always believed Sam implicitly when he said that. Right. In part, of course, because as Archimago was pointing out, we can see it's the kind of thing Sam would do. Right. Uh, Because Sam is, in fact, interested in elves and he would be enchanted by this concept and everything and and upset about hearing that Mr. Frodo was going away and all that and all that sort of thing. Um, But um, but yeah, he uh, he was clearly doing it. And again, this is where we go back with the member, the you know, the the exhibiting his shears as evidence. Right. Um, He's thinking about what he's got to do tomorrow. He's thinking about the grass growing at Bag End, and he had more on his mind than gardening. Yeah, he has spying on Gandalf and Frodo in mind, and he's thinking they're probably going to be sitting right in the parlor at Bag End. Um, I'm uh, the grass is growing right, so if I get my shears, I can position myself. He's plotting how he can overhear what they're going to say the next day, right? Um, so. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I think he, he, he clearly had, and he avoids it, right? He avoids giving that away. He's just like, oh, I listened because I couldn't help myself, right? He doesn't really give an answer for why he clearly, with malice of forethought, right, or benevolence of forethought uh, in this, in the current case, uh, had, had plotted to do that. Um, 
Exactly. Whale off. Sam's lie has enough of the truth in it to be perfectly in character. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but notice Frodo's response here. Um, Frodo's reaction, right? He's, he's amused, right? He can hardly, he's hardly able to keep from laughing. I suspect that his, you know, his three reactions, amusement, startlement, and puzzlement, right? And I think all of these three things are focused on, remember the contrast. Gandalf has just been like, the enemy has many spies and many ways of hearing, right? This sort of freaky idea of the spies of Mordor lurking in the Shire. And then he reaches out his arm and pulls up Sam Gamgee's head. And I think the contrast between paranoia of the spies of the enemy and then Sam... Right. And, and so clearly the idea that the sort of in Frodo's mind, the juxtaposition of Sam Gamgee's head with the concept of spies of Mordor makes him laugh. Right. Um, but he's amused and startled and puzzled. Right. Startled because Gandalf has just said this super paranoid thing about be careful. There are spies everywhere. And then, holy cow, there's actually a spy there. That's kind of startling. Right. Um and a little bit puzzling. Like, was he really spying? Like, he's probably not really spying. It's hilarious to think about Sam as a spy of Mordor. But, um, but it's interesting. I think that all, you can see how all three of those things are a response to you know him trying to sort of process what exactly was going on here. Frodo clearly buys um, the response, right? Buys Sam's uh, uh, explanation. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so. Notice what Sam emphasizes, right? Um, he heard about an enemy and rings and Mr. Bilbo, sir, and dragons and a fiery mountain and elves, right? Sam's summary of the conversation. Um and by the way, I do really like the addition in the film when Sam says, you know, in something about the end of the world. I really like that addition to that. But you notice how, notice what it does. I, I love that line, but notice how that line in the film shifts Sam to comedy, right? That is, he sort of has a kind of a simple perspective that prompts us to laugh, right? At him, really. Kind of affectionately. Um, but notice what it what it loses, right? Sam doesn't wind up to a punchline in the printed version, right? In the in in the text, what he comes up to is wonder, right? Exactly what Archimago was pointing to about his conversation in the Green Dragon, right? Elves, sir, I listened because I couldn't help myself. I do love tales of that sort, right? I do love tales of that sort. Listen, think of the difference between Frodo's reaction to the story that Gandalf has been telling him and Sam's, right? You know, here's Frodo. Like, his entire world has come crashing down. This is like the worst day of Frodo's life. You know, the, all the things that Gandalf has been telling him, and it's, it's like at the risk of completely overwhelming him. And here's Sam outside the window saying, I do love tales of that sort, right? Uh, this is just my kind of thing. Um... And I believe them too, whatever Ted may say. Him explicitly alluding back to the conversation, right? So, I am not, he says, like other hobbits of the Shire, like Ted Sandyman. I believe in the old tales. Um, and, uh, and, and 
uh, as uh, as uh, John Uskoas says here, um, Sam's summary is actually a pretty good summary. Um, it's uh, you know hardly a summary that someone as dumb as Sam is playing here would actually give. Yes, he he was paying attention, right? The, uh, now there are some elements that he's clearly taken perhaps a little out of context. I mean, like for instance, dragons, right? There are a couple references to dragons, as you know how the some of the dragons destroyed some of the other rings, and and how you know nor was there ever any dragon, right? So there have been references to dragons, but it's not like they've exactly been telling dragon stories, right? So there are some things which clearly hit Sam's personal interest hot buttons, right? Um, but yeah, he actually does. Um, uh, he uh, he he actually does get some uh, 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 get the basic points uh, of the story. But again, from such a different uh, perspective, what it invokes in him is, you know, again, think about, and this is, I think, really fun, how we get to see this from a different point of view at the end of this chapter, right? One way in which you could summarize Frodo's experience, right, is all of these stories, Bilbo's stories, about the world, right, that he experienced and the adventures that he had, the stories that Frodo has been hearing about Mordor and the Dark Lord and the rise of the Black Tower and all that stuff, right? Um, He's been hearing all these stories, and all of these stories have come real to him, right? They have invaded his everyday world, and now the Dark Lord of Mordor is actually after him personally, right? And he is now not just playing with the idea of going out on an, an adventure like Bilbo or trying to find Bilbo. Um, now he is thrust into this as suddenly and as thoroughly as Bilbo was back in the day, right? So this is, uh, um, this is what happens to Frodo during the course of chapter two. Sam is the same thing, right? These stories become real to him, and his reaction to that is wonder, right? Delight. Um, yes, like all the... I, I believed in these stories, but his belief has been a belief of sort of pure faith. He did once thought he saw an elf, but he wasn't really sure, right? Um, he's never met elves. He doesn't even have sort of the kind of... the second-hand evidence. Frodo has never been outside the Shire. Frodo's never seen most of these things. But he has seen elves, right? You know, he has more reason than Sam, more experience than Sam uh, does that would lead, um, uh, that would lead, you know, to the the clear conclusion that there's, you know, more to them, that they're real. Um, with Sam, it's been a more sort of pure faith, right? Um, which he asserts here. I believe them too. Um, couldn't you take me to see elves when you go? Um, yeah, good. Okay. Um, and yes, uh, Cecilia, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, so Sam, uh, already has some idea that he might be going, might even in a tiny part of his mind want to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, won't you take me to see the elves, sir, when you go? Uh, certainly Cecilia, we see that Sam's response upon hearing that Frodo is going away is immediately the desire not to prevent him, but to go with him, right? Couldn't you take me when you go? He asks it as a treat, right? Uh, not as a, you know, you're going to need me, but um, uh, but uh, couldn't you please take me uh, with you? Okay, so... 
Then Gandalf deems a doom. It can't be helped, Sam, said Frodo sadly. He had suddenly realized that flying from the Shire would mean more painful partings than merely saying farewell to the, comf to the familiar comforts of Bag End. I shall have to go, but... And here he looked hard at Sam. If you really care about me, you will keep that dead secret, see? If you don't, if you even breathe a word of what you've heard here, then I hope Gandalf will turn you into a spotted toad and fill the garden full of grass snakes. Sam fell on his knees, trembling. Get up, Sam, said Gandalf. I have thought of something better than that, something to shut your mouth and punish you properly for listening. You shall go, shall go away with Mr. Frodo. Me, sir, cried Sam, springing up like a dog invited for a walk. Me go and see elves and all? Hooray! he shouted, and then burst into tears. Um, I love Frodo's wizardous threat here, right? I hope Gandalf will turn you into a spotted toad and fill the garden full of grass snakes. Uh, this is fairly extreme, right? And, um, uh, and of course, it's it's sort of relevant to the immediate context, right? That is, before he was infenestrated, I still... Uh, well, wasn't that you who talked about the infenestration of, of, of Sam in this scene? I still love that. Uh, anyway... Um, uh, of course, he was just down in the grass, right? So we're going to put you back in the in 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 the garden, right? Uh, and then we're going to turn you into a toad uh, and fill the garden full of grass snakes. Um, and um, that uh, is an extreme, but also a slightly absurd request. Uh, one thing that interests me about this, it's like, does Frodo even have any idea? Does he have any idea what? Gandalf can actually do. Um, this sort of strikes me as a really interesting glimpse in Hobbit perspective on wizards in general, and Gandalf in particular, right? Um, we know that, like the other Hobbits, suspect Gandalf of, you know, hatching dark plots that nobody else understands. Um, and uh, and I guess even Frodo, who knows Gandalf better than any other Hobbit currently in the Shire, um, sort of imagines uh, these kinds of things. Could Gandalf really do that? Maybe he could really do that. We never see a wizard doing anything like that. Um, uh, but it seems part of Hobbit lore that wizards might act in that kind of way. Uh, Galandar is wondering if uh, the punishment that Frodo is suggesting uh, perhaps might be meant to sound a little lighthearted so that Sam would be put at ease. Um, I don't know, but if it is, it doesn't work, right, as Sam falls on his knees trembling. Remember, Sam believes the stories, right? He's heard stories about wizards and what wizards can do, and he believes them, right? So he falls on his knees trembling. Um, uh, does he actually say, struck by lightning, struck by lightning? I don't know. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, uh, Amy's Revenge is wondering if this is more a study in what Frodo thinks that Sam might believe. Possibly, possibly. Um, and good, James Stevens was just saying the same thing. Uh, possibly, possibly. Um, uh, good. Marielle has a great question. Is Sam loyal to Frodo himself at this point, or is he uh, uh, loyal to the memory of uh, Bilbo, who taught him his letters and told him stories about elves? He clearly is, is loyal to Frodo. Um, you know, he says he was that upset, right, when he heard that Frodo was going away. Um you know, that he choked, which Gandalf heard seemingly. Um, so, um, uh, so absolutely. I, I think that he is definitely loyal to, to Frodo, but clearly reveres, uh, Mr. Bilbo, uh, uh, definitely. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. Uh uh Benjamin, my uh my my guide on our procession earlier this evening says uh, uh the wise and well-read likely grasp what wizards could do, but someone like a, a wizard would surely avoid overt displays of power uh so as not to create fear among those that are uh they are there to serve to do otherwise would be akin to Sauron or his followers. Uh, yes, absolutely. Gandalf wouldn't act like this and so would never really confirm right or deny that uh um that the um uh the wizards are able to do that kind of thing um and yes Karita, it is a, so a an image the image of the snake eating the toad which is going to be uh uh very uh, i mean it's it, it is a very garden centered kind of punishment right which which uh, uh which would certainly uh hit hit sam um yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> Mayalov says, please don't throw me in the briar patch, Mr. Gandalf, sir. Yeah, exactly, something like that. Um, okay, good, yeah. Um, now, Veronica asks a great question, you know, is Frodo just teasing Sam here? I mean, is it, we see, you know, hobbits kind of giving each other grief all the time. This is a thing that hobbits do, and we've talked about this. Um, is this the same kind of thing? Uh, you know, I, I think the tone is sort of different here, right? Um, then I hope Gandalf will turn you into a spotted toad and fill the garden full of grass snakes. It's a little over the top, right? Uh, so it's it's I, I, I think it, it could possibly be. But again, Sam clearly doesn't take it that way. And one other thing, Veronica, that I would point to, Frodo and Sam are not social equals. Um, you'll see Frodo and Sam very rarely engaging in that kind of... Uh, um, repartee, right? Uh, they rarely banter like that. Um, Frodo banters heavily with Merry and Pippin in that way, because they're peers. Sam is his servant, um, and therefore Frodo always speaks to Sam generally kindly and affectionately with very little of the kind of banter that he gives to those who are his peers uh, and friends. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, um, now, Cecilia, thinking back to what Sam was saying about his eagerness to go, Cecilia is wondering if, uh, you know, do I think he truly, Sam truly understands how great the danger is? Um, you know, he heard all that conversation, but has the true meaning hit him? Yeah, well, one thing, Cecilia, of course, it's going to hit Frodo differently, right, than it's going to hit Sam. I mean, they're not after Sam personally. Um, but I think there are a couple different ways we could read that, right? One is, as you get, that it's kind of gone over Sam's head a little bit. He, he's not really thinking it through uh, thoroughly um, and uh, doesn't really realize the full danger. But I don't think so. I think that Sam's wonder is overwhelming his fear here. Um, remember... Okay, I say remember. If you've read on fairy stories you may remember that uh, Tolkien talks about the tendency that children have when listening to a fairy story to ask the question, is it true? Um, he acknowledges that kids do ask this question, but he says what kids usually mean when they ask, is it, is it true, is, am I safe in my bed? <laughs> right? Um, are there giants, in fact, in the next county over? Right? Is a dragon going to come into this room? 
right? Uh, is it going to set fire to the top of the next hill, like, you know, in Bilbo's little sort of vision in chapter one of The Hobbit? Um, because, of course, uh, the spirit may be bold, but the body is is weak uh, and fearful. Okay, these are what, what Tolkien talks about in On Fairy Stories. Sam, it seems to me, is one who loves fairy stories, elf stories, so much that he is not worried about the danger. He would, if if he could know for sure that the dra- stories about dragons were true and the stories about the elves were true and all these things were true and real, he would buy that at the cost of danger. Um, it's worth it. Knowing that the Dark Lord is out there and is hunting Mr. Frodo and coming to invade the Shire, um, it's worth that price to be actually immersed into this world of fantasy, right? Into this into this fairy tale world in which he's always believed. I believe in dragons. I believe in elves. Um, it seems that I think that Sam is 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 basically he he's not worried because he's brave. Of course, Sam is brave, but. Uh, that's not his first thought. And I think that that's really fascinating. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, James says, all Sam hears is elves. Yes, exactly, Sam. is like, you had me at elves, right? Um, yeah, exactly. And as Tony says, this is the moment when, as the gaffer would say, Sam uh, gets into trouble that's too big for him. Yes. Uh, and remember, remember back to that conversation? Um, this is part of, this is the, the part of the conversation between gaffer, uh, Gamgee, and, uh, and and Ted's dad, right? Mr. Sa- Sandy in the Miller. And uh, he says, remember, uh, uh, it's when he talks about Bilbo teaching Sam to read, Right. Uh, that that Mr. Bilbo's learned him his letters, meaning no harm, mark you, and I hope no harm comes of it. Uh, and of course, you could say, well, harm did come of it, right? Here's Sam becomes all literate and starts reading stories, and when he reads stories, now look at the danger that that reading these stories has gotten him into, right? And as uh, in the the passage that Tony was referring to, right afterwards, Gaffer quotes the advice that he gave to his son Sam, right? Don't get mixed up with the business of your betters, or you'll land in trouble too big for you. Um, and he does land in trouble that's too big for him, right? And here he is getting messed up in the business of his betters. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so... Good. All right, so let's, uh, let me, uh, let me move on before, uh, before we totally run out of time, we're going to get, because we're going to get to chapter. Okay, well, so last, last thing here, of course, is Sam's mixed reactions, right? This is the other thing that, that convinces me that it hasn't all gone over his head. He does, in addition to saying hooray, he does also burst into tears, right? Um, uh, this is um, the fact that he has both of these reactions. I, I don't believe that these are just tears of joy. Right, that he's like, hooray, and I'm, I'm crying because I'm happy. Like, he is crying because he's happy, but he, I think Sam also realizes, right? He's scared to leave home. He's never left home before. He's never even left Hobbiton before, right? Much less the Shire. Um, Frodo is well-traveled in comparison, and Frodo's never left the Shire. Um, I think that his tears are real tears. I think that he's sad to leave. Um, I think that he's afraid. He's scared. But he 
says hooray and really means it, right? He really means both. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I definitely, um, uh, I definitely see both of those things involved there. Um, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Irendis calls it emotional overload. Yes, yes, exactly. Oh, and, uh, uh, Lincoln, one last point, of course, notice this idea of Sam getting, uh, mixed up in the business of his betters, right? V- just like the heroism stuff that you were talking about, right? Um, in a sense, that's what being a hero is, right? Being a hero is being, you know, a person of not any exceptional merits, um, but being such a person who gets mixed up in the business of your betters, right? Being put, in other words, into a heroic position. And, you know, it's not you, right? Um, you don't have uh, the capabilities, but you've got to do what you've got to do. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and now, are you ready? Chapter three. Look at that. We got there. You ought to go quietly, and you ought to go soon, said Gandalf. Two or three weeks had passed, and still Frodo made no sign of getting ready to go. I know, but it is difficult to do both, he objected. If I just vanish like Bilbo, the tale will be all over the Shire in no time. Of course you mustn't vanish, said Gandalf. That wouldn't do at all. I said soon, not instantly. If you can think of any way of slipping out of the Shire without its being generally known, it will be worth a little delay. But you must not delay too long. "'What about the autumn, on or after our birthday?' asked Frodo. "'I think I could probably make some arrangements by then.'" Okay. Um, "'If you can think of any way of slipping out of the Shire without its being generally known, it will be worth a little delay.'" So, first of all, a little delay, apparently six months counts as a little delay, right? Because um, that's what we're talking about here. It's early, right? In this scene, it's, it's, it's months before they're actually going. Um so, um, uh, yeah, so, okay, so, it, and it would be worth it. So let's kind of talk about this. This is another moment where, of course, Gandalf can come across looking bad, right? Um, poor planning on Gandalf's part. First of all, let's not forget the fact that, uh, Gandalf would be the first to admit this, right? Gandalf will admit this, that he made a very serious mistake here, um, but there's um, there's a bunch of things going on here that it's really important for us to remember. Not just the fact that we can't merely look back at this in with hindsight, right? Again, when Gandalf looks back on this in hi- with hindsight, he's going to call this the worst mistake he ever made. But um, there's nobody knows. There's no reason to know that the Ringwraiths, the Black Riders, are even they don't even know or suspect they've left Mordor. Right, much less that they're closing in on the Shire and as close as they are to figuring things out. Gandalf has literally no way of even guessing that that's going to be the case. Um, so let's kind of back up and think about things. Think about things a little bit here. Um, first, notice Gandalf's priorities. You ought to go quietly, and you ought to go soon. Clearly, in that order, quietness matters more to Gandalf than soonness. Right. Um, don't leave instantly whatever you do. So if he were to leave instantly in a way that will be that will cause talk um, or that will be generally known, that would be that's that's not as good as leaving quietly several months from now. Right. That's very clear in Gandalf's book. So why should that be? 
what's Gandalf's thinking here? Um, why does he have those priorities in that order? Um, three things that I would urge us to remember in thinking about this. Thing number one. Again, Gandalf does not know that the Ringwraiths are in pursuit. Um, what he knows, as he's explained to Frodo, Sauron knows that Baggins of the Shire has the ring, and he's going to be hunting for you. What does Gandalf assume? Um, he says explicitly later on that he had no idea that it would be the Ringwraiths. And the Ringwraiths being sent on this trip is actually a bit of a surprise. Um, uh, that it's, 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 that's not something that was actually sort of easy to foresee. Gandalf obviously is sort of imagining human spies, right? Um, maybe, possibly, conceivably, some hobbits might have been corrupted or something, but even that is really unlikely. So Gandalf has pretty good reason to think that any spies of Mordor are going to be, are going to stick out like a sore thumb in the Shire, right? They're going to see them from a long way off because they're not going to blend in, right? If there's like random men traveling through the Shire asking questions, that's going to become really obvious, right? So there's no reason to think um, that pursuit is anywhere close. And he certainly doesn't think that it's going to be the ring rates. So that's one thing. Second thing, um, Middle-earth is huge, and we have to remember how big Middle-earth is. And it's not just that it's big. Uh, this is where we have to imaginatively invest ourselves in this pre-modern world, right? And this is something, it's an imaginative leap that a lot of modern readers really fail to make. Um, because the world is the world is huge, and it's not just that it's big, there's no mass transit, right? You can't get anywhere fast, and there's no communication. We are so spoiled. The world has become, has come to seem very small to us. Now that you can constantly be getting news updates about what's going on, you know, in the Ukraine or in Australia or whatever, uh, you know, we're used to instantly communicating with people all over the world. We're used to traveling, you know, like me just popping down to Texas and back for a, you know, for a day and a half last weekend. Um, that kind of thing is totally impossible, right? I mean, I, I remember trying having this conversation with my kids um, and trying to get them to embrace this. You know, we, we, we moved up to New Hampshire so we'd be closer to my family and in large part, all my, I have three siblings, my parents, my siblings, their families, they're all here in Southern New Hampshire. So one day we're driving over to, uh, to my sister's house to there to, 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 to see the cousins, uh, lots of cousins, my family, my sister's a big family. Um, and we're driving over there. It's like a 15 mile drive. It takes us like half an hour to get there. And, um, you know, I was trying to impress upon my kids, like, you re- think about this. How long do you think it would take you to get there if you didn't have a car, right? Um, and we're sort of realizing, yeah, it would be, that, that's a, I mean, that's just two towns over from here, right? In my tiny little state of New Hampshire, that would be a day's journey, a, a long day's journey to get there, uh, especially given the terrain that you'd have to cross. It's uphill to get to my sister's house. Um, and we don't even... We don't even think about that, right? Um, 
it's easy for us to kind of look at the Shire and be like, oh, those parochial hobbits, right? You know, Gaffer Gamgee with his whole, like, folks are queer over there, right? But that's, of course, how it—that's normal, right? That's just how things would always be. Somebody never to travel more than 20 miles away from uh, from their hometown is perfectly normal, right? I mean, you just wouldn't do that— how could you do? How could you afford to do that? When, when would you have the time uh, to travel that kind of a distance? So, so remember the situation. Yes, on the one hand, Sauron knows Baggins in the Shire. Remember, there also aren't even maps. It's not just that they don't have the internet, right? It's not just that they don't have airplanes. They don't even have cartography, right? They don't have published maps. Uh, th- th- there won't be any map that Sauron will have ever seen that has the Shire labeled on it. Right. All he what he. So the first thing that his servants have to do is go wandering out into the Western world, wandering around Eriador saying, has anybody ever heard of a land of halflings? Right. Does anyone know where there's a bunch of little people living? Right. And nobody has. And so you keep wandering around until you find it. I mean, the distance traveling, the distance on horseback, if you know straight where you're going is months and months and months. Right. If you're not, if you have no idea even which direction to go and you're wandering up and down and your Grim is asking, would they even know that they are halflings? Maybe even not. Right. Probably. You probably tortured that out of Gollum. Maybe you got enough a description to to uh, to sort of know that. Um, I think it's I think it's I think it's possible. But um, anyway, yeah, it's it's. um, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. uh, people joking about uh, just saying, you know, Siri, find Baggins. Um, uh, yeah, ex- exactly. Exactly. That there's, there's, there, <laughs> there's just no way for them to do anything like that. Right. So even if he knows that the dark Lord is coming, right. There is no reason to think that Sauron is going to be able to find Frodo in a year two years, three years. It could be five years. It could be a decade. It could be 50 years before he finds out exactly, probably less time than that because he has, uh, um, he has a lot of, uh, 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 of servants who can cover a lot of ground. Right. Um, but anyway, it's, um, there's no reason for them to think there's this kind of urgency. Right, even knowing that the Dark Lord is after them. If you remember the size of the world and the state of technology and the kind of blind search that the servants of Sauron are, are entering on, and Gandalf knows better than anybody else how little anyone else in the world knows about the Shire and where the Shire is. Um, even the wise don't even really know. Um, the best thing they have to go on, remember, is that people in the greater Erebor region knew that Bilbo had come from the west and was headed back and, and was last seen headed off in that direction, right? So vaguely north and west from uh, uh, from uh, Mordor and on the other side of the Misty Mountains. So he only has like, you know, Eriador to cover instead of all of Rovanian too, but still there's a heck of a lot of space over there and a whole lot of open country where there aren't even people to ask questions of. Um, so yes, exactly. Sarah Lagarde points out that a that, that a blind search by the Ringwraiths is uh, true in more than one sense. Uh, absolutely. Um, 
So, so yeah, so we have to remember that the third thing that we have to, we do have to remember is that Sauron's directions are quite vague and his knowledge is very limited. Um, uh, knowing that he lived in a land called the Shire, uh, would not help. Nobody else has heard of the Shire, right? Uh, so there's, there's just, again, there's lots of reasons for Gandalf not to be worried and think that there's any urgency. Uh, with Frodo's leaving, but this is exactly why his first priority is to prevent talk, right? Because if the disappearance of Frodo Baggins creates a sensation that everybody is talking about, right? There might be... Remember, even at the Prancing Pony in Bree, they heard stories about Bilbo's departure, right? The story of of the vanishing of Bilbo Baggins was heard in Bree, right? Um, Therefore... If word gets around, if it becomes a nine days wonder, if everybody's discussing it, then that is the thing that's going to give them away more than more. Than, it's it, that's much more important, right? That could make the search, um, that could make the search uh, succeed much much more quickly. Um, and uh, and yes, Simon, you're absolutely right that uh, in Eriador, of course, you do have the Rangers to deal with, who would also be. Uh, 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 as we know from playing Lotro, faithfully sitting next to campfires, but presumably uh, uh, remaining vigilant and looking for the servants of Sauron who would be spying out the place. Um, yeah, so that would also make things difficult. And again, Gandalf Gandalf knows about that. Um, yes, sitting next to campfires and not learning the Black Speech, Simon. Exactly. Exactly. It's just what they're up to. Um, okay, we are almost out of time here tonight. Let me do one more. For where am I to go? And by what shall I steer? What is to be my quest? Bilbo went to find a treasure, there and back again, but I go to lose one and not return as far as I can see. But you cannot see very far, said Gandalf. Neither can I. It may be your task to find the cracks of doom, but that quest may be for others. I do not know. At any rate, you are not ready for that long road yet." No, indeed, said Frodo. But in the meantime, what course am I to take? Towards danger, but not too rashly, nor too straight, answered the wizard. If you want my advice, make for Rivendell. That journey should not prove too perilous, though the road is less easy than it was, and it will grow worse as the year fails. Rivendell, said Frodo. Very good. I will go east, and I will make for Rivendell. I will take Sam to visit the elves. He will be delighted. He spoke lightly but his heart was moved suddenly with a desire to see the house of Elrond Half-Elven and breathe the air of that deep valley where many of the fair folk still dwelt in peace. Okay. Um, All right. So, notice Frodo's uncertainty here, right? I mean, it's one thing for him to say, as he said at the end of chapter one, like, I'll have to go into exile right? Um, I'm going to leave the Shire. Um, But he, when it comes to actually thinking about like, but I have to go somewhere. (laughs) Where do I go? Where do, you know, the the sort of the, the, his true rootlessness, his purposelessness compared again to Bilbo, right? Uh, You know, Bilbo went to, to find a treasure there and back again, right? I go to lose one and not to, and not to return as far as I can see. Um, Bilbo always had a, a goal, right? 
his goal was always to get to the mountain, though really it was get to the mountain and to come back again, right? It was, it was, it his 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 destination was always the hill by way of the mountain, right? Frodo has nothing to steer by, right? He has no goal. Um, maybe the cracks of doom, says Gandalf, but maybe not. We'll see, right? Uh, but in any case, uh, in the meantime, what course am I to take? Um, make for Rivendell, right? That is the initial, uh, his initial advice. Frodo's response, I think, is really important, right? Um, we see his desire, right? Like Sam, Frodo, too, loves Bilbo's story, stories, right? He also wants to see the house of Elrond, half-elven. He has been hearing Bilbo's stories about his journey, um, you know, his, his stories about Rivendell for his whole life. Um, we saw that as soon as he made his choice to embrace this responsibility and to take the ring and guard it and to leave and sacrifice his own life in order to save the lives of others, the first thing that arose in him, as if it were a reward for the choice that he made or in response to the choice that he made, was desire, right? Positive desire to run out the door and to follow Bilbo. Um, And he immediately feels this same desire again. His heart is moved suddenly with the desire to see the house of Elrond Half-Elf and and breathe the air of that deep valley. Um, By the way, that that line always kind of puzzled me a little bit, like, breathe the air of the valley? What's special about the air? What could be special about the air? Um, Much could be special about the air. I used to think that that was metaphorical, right? Um, there's a certain air, you know, about that. No, no, it's, um, there's literally something in the air. And remember, exactly, Tony, this is the same response that we know that there's something in the air in that valley, right? That when the fair folk, when the elves are dwelling in this place, it changes the actual air in the valley. Um, Bilbo smells it. Right as soon as he gets, that's what it means. That's why Bilbo says it smells like elves, right? Because elves actually have a smell. It's not like elvish body odor that he's smelling. He's smelling the air, literally the air of the valley. Um, John Osglass asks, might it have to do with the ring of air? No, I don't think it does. Actually, um, it's just an elf thing. Um, it's um, it's it's. In the Silmarillion material, we learn that there actually, there is an air thing. Like, elves need to breathe the air of Middle-earth. They can't live. It's like oxygen deprivation, except non-scientific. If they live in Valinor without access to the air that comes in, uh, from from the great lands. I'm not kidding. This is what's it's what it's it's when you hear about. So I, I used to think that when Tolkien talked about the air and the air of Middle Earth, that he meant that just figuratively. He was sort of speaking broadly about the sort of spirit of things and whatever. Um, I have ceased to believe that Tolkien is speaking from what I've seen. He actually is speaking literally about the air that is breathed. 
Um, so, so yeah, yeah, I, I actually think, um, uh, that, um, I think that he, he, he means the, like, I don't know what, again, he doesn't do it scientifically, right? I mean, is it like an oxygen saturation thing? I don't really know, but it's, um, uh, uh, but it's, <laughs> uh, uh, sorry. Hugo was just saying Fabreeze, right? Yes, exactly. Fabreeze. Um, <laughs> some, something like that. Um, yeah. Wayloff says it's like there's something in the water of the end drafts. Exactly. Uh, yeah, elf air, uh, you know, the, like the air is to the elves, what the water is to the ends, something like that. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's like that. Um, yeah, Bilbo's smelling like the the smells like elves line is the one that uh, that I think really kind of seals that for me more. And again, all those early Silmarillion references and Cecilia, yes, it is Elrond who does have the Ring of Air. Um, but again, I don't think I don't think that that really has to do with it. I think that uh, I, I think that Lorien smells like elves too. Um, but uh, but we'll see. Um, uh, Mariel asks, is it like how in the Silmarillion the men and Moraquendi who spend time with the returned Noldor grow in stature and wisdom? Yes, exactly. And of course we see that, uh, we'll see that in the Lord of the Rings, um, as well. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. And, and, and that there's this actual sort of physiological connection. Um, but anyway, okay, um, Good. See, Irendis. We're not. We're not going to get to this passage for months. But um, in the Ringoth South, Irendis is recalling, um, you know, uh, Gandalf's comment: "There is a wholesome air about Holland. Much evil must befall a country before it wholly forgets the elves." Right. See, elves used to live there, so the air, literal air, is more wholesome in Holland uh, than in other places. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's that's just there's a literal change in the air. Um, it's an effect. Um, but I think, you know, going back to what uh, Marielle was saying, exactly the kind of influence that the elves have, um, it's like the outward manifestation of the way, like when you hang out with elves, you know, you, when you breathe in the air that the elves live in, right, you're changed. Like it changes you. You breathe that in and it becomes part of you. And yes, you, you, you grow, right, in stature as a consequence. Um so yeah okay all right um it is time to stop next week we will spend all of our time in chapter three and we'll look at the beginning of the journey i don't know if we'll get as far as uh the meeting with gildor uh but i certainly hope that we will get to the talking fox and to the uh ring wraiths the 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 intervention of the black riders so um all right um let's uh it's field trip time Let's do our field trip this evening. Uh, so tonight we are going to um, uh, we're going to go back to Mickle Delving. Uh, what I want to do, thinking about setting out on journeys and, and things, I want to look at the, the 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 quest line. See, one of the problems with the epic quest line is that we don't get the true beginning. If you recall, and I've mentioned this before, if you start a Hobbit, especially, I think it's a Hobbit. I don't think it's, is it, 
is it men too? Or no, I think it's just hobbits. Um, if you start a hobbit character in Lotro, the intro area that you have to go through at the beginning starts with you being standing by the side of the road and seeing Frodo, Sam, and Pippin go by. So you're in chapter three, in other words, um, when the epic quest begins. Um, therefore, we don't get the real beginnings of the story, the beginnings of adventure and the setting off on adventure. Um, so what I would like to do, I really enjoy the bingo, uh, the bingo boffin quest line, the, uh, um, the adventures of bingo. And I want to, I want to do the beginning of the bingo quest, looking at that in the context of thinking about chapter two and chapter three, as we've begun looking at it here, this decision to set out where Frodo and Sam are um, at that stage there, again, at the, uh, you know, in the passages that we were looking at today. And I want to look at how Lotro handles the beginnings of adventure. Now, of course, the beginnings of Bingo's adventure are much more like the beginnings of Bilbo's adventure, right? Frodo is not setting out from scratch in ignorance uh, of all these things. And of course, his setting out is a much more solemn kind of thing, uh, even than Bilbo, and certainly than Bingo Boffin. But um, but I really am interested in how they handle that and how they look at Hobbit culture and things and how they sort of apply uh, Hobbit culture within the context of those quests. So, that's what I want to do. Um, are we ready, Maven? Are we, are we just going to... Are, are we okay just to, to, to ride over there? To stable master over there? Okay. All right. Um, oh, sorry. I thought I was not muted. I oh, yeah. You were. Um, I, before we go, I'd like to have Benjamin come up. There's one thing that sure. um, he would like to talk a little bit about. Absolutely. The kinship does. So yeah. Before we do that, and, and then we can go. Are you unmuted? I'm officially unmuted, yes. (laughs) Well, thanks again for allowing us to escort you in for the lecture tonight. It is, of course, always flattering and honor to be able to participate in these things in any way and form. Um, One thing I wanted to plug, and Maven was good enough to cede me a few seconds to do this, was to make people aware of our forthcoming August um, scheduled LotroCon. It's something we've done uh, four times in the past. We took a pass last year during the server merges, but we are looking to gather again socially. Um, date within August to be pinpointed based on uh, kinships that want to participate, but we will be gathering at Cedar Point Amusement Park in northern Ohio on the shores of Lake Erie. And it's a purely social thing. Uh, the main event will take place on a Saturday, which is pretty much folks gathering for everything from swilling ale and Tolkien trivia to the obviously lore-rooted tradition of riding massive steel roller coasters at high speed. Yes. But if you're not familiar with it, uh, keep an eye on LotroCon.com. Uh, that's our Facebook page that we have uh, set up, and we're going to be doing the scheduling and basically coordinating and communicating it through there and hope more folks will come north uh, if they have the time and the means and uh, spend a few days in the sun uh, just having fun not in front of a computer cool cool that sounds great yeah sounds like sounds like something Mythgard could definitely get behind i agree <laughs> was definitely thinking the same thing <laughs> thanks for the time well, thank you thank you
you, Benjamin, and thanks to the Sons of Numenor for, for bringing our, uh, our illustrious professor in tonight. We'll hopefully we'll be able to do this again. But now it's time to go to Mickle Delving. All right. So uh, folks have ports and horses and whatnot. I can take people, if anybody needs to be ported, come up here and I'll fellow up. Any other hunters that want to do that? Um, um, my buddy Darren Thalion over in the corner over there also is offering. He's a hunter. Other than that, you know, you can get the horse from the West Gate, or, or I know a lot of folks probably have milestones and stuff. So, um, Very good. All right, yeah, I am... you better leave first because nobody's leaving before you leave. All right, so. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm heading out. We're going to Stable Master. Okay, great. And we're going to find him here. I'm going the wrong way. Gosh, it's been so long since I've been here. I don't even remember which way to turn. It's the top of the stairs. Getting lost on my way out of the lore hall, for crying out loud. Yeah, that was... Bay, you need a you need a ride? One of our new kinnies. Cool. All right. So, uh, just a little context uh, for people who are not familiar with the game. This uh, this quest line of Bingo Boffin was just introduced um, relatively recently. When was it? A couple, like two years ago? Then it started, something like that. Yeah, I think so. Um, but. Uh, you know, it was this new quest line which began um, uh, began out here in Mickle Delving, and it starts at like level eight, so you can begin it uh, at the very you know, at very low levels, and it goes all the way up through level ninety three. Um, and it's this long contiguous story that's totally unconnected uh, with the epic quest line. The epic quest line has you know the PC sort of paralleling the story, uh, you know, the primary story of the Lord of the Rings, and that's. Uh, you know, it's all it's all very interesting. You know, and it's it's really cool to be going along and threading your way through along, uh, sort of parallel uh, to the path of the uh, uh, of the fellowship. But uh, this, so this storyline is a totally independent storyline, totally optional. Of course, you don't have to do it, and a lot of people don't. Um, but I think it's pretty nifty. So we're gonna we're gonna head over there. Let's see for guess, um Maven, how many people are still coming? We got. I think we're we're good. I think we're we've good. got everybody. There's going to be a couple people that are AFK back in the lore hall, but hopefully right. we'll catch up with us. Okay, <laughs> exactly. Okay, now we're at July of 2015 is when it began. Yeah, so almost two years. Okay, exactly. Um, <laughs> JJ48 says, if you're going to skip Bingo Boffin, why even bother downloading the game? <laughs> See, there you go. Um, so let's. Uh, find where oh here I've wandered into the gardens here um, you'll remember the Burden Baby Pub is right over there that we went to here's the center of uh, the center of town right up here we've got the uh, Mayor Flower Dumpling right there's a little wood foot right there and if we go right around the corner from them in this little Hobbit neighborhood right over here lives Bingo Boffin. Of course, um, 
the very the, the I was excited as soon as I heard about the bingo quest, even just because of his name. A pleasant day to you, friend. Uh, because it, it, it suggested to me that they are, you know, that they were they were they were going to be paralleling the books because, of course, Bingo was Frodo's original name, um, and, and you know, before uh, before Tolkien changed the name uh, from Bingo to Frodo uh, in the Return of the Shadow class, we're in the second draft. We're gonna, we're going to be actually looking at the second draft of uh, the of Chapter Two, uh, which we've just spent the last month and a half doing uh, here. So we're going to be looking at Tolkien's second draft of that, and it's still Bingo, right? He's still we still have not yet gotten to the point in the Return of the Shadow where he changes the name from Bingo to Frodo. Um, so, uh, Bingo Boffin, and I love the titles that he's given. He's a lonely homebody here at the beginning. That's the, that's uh, Bingo and where he starts. Um, so at the beginning here, right, Bingo says, pleasant day to you. Um, and uh, he's, 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 he asks just if he could trouble us, right, if we could possibly help him. What help does Bingo need? Right, he's of the Delving Field Boffins, uh, and it's rare for him to see new folk. So first thing, notice that he finds it a pleasure to meet strangers. This already makes him an unusual kind of hobbit, right? On the one hand, he's kind of typical. He's a typical stay-at-home, nickel-delving citizen. But uh, he doesn't just look at us as, uh, you know, a bunch of queer folk from out of town. And, and honestly, looking at this crowd, he could be forgiven for uh, thinking that we looked uh, rather queer, uh, so, but but that's not his reaction, right? He's interested in new people, and he strikes up a conversation and indeed asks us uh, for help. Um, and I even love the reference for me to see new folk on the path that runs by my hole. Even the reference to the path running by his hole uh, reminds me of uh, the the road goes ever on song, right? Um, and how, you know, the, 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 there's only one road and its tributaries are at every doorstep, right? Bingo Boffin may, may never have heard Bilbo's song, uh, but th- there's almost this sense in which he has the same instinct, right? Uh, which I, I, think is, I think is pretty cool. Um, but he admits he's been feeling a mite lonely and thinks he could use a festive occasion to put a spring in his step and to occupy his thoughts, maybe a dinner party. Um, that's what he said. So this is his idea. He's going to throw a dinner party. Now, notice again the parallel, right? The parallel between Bilbo at the beginning. Now, now, now again, this is not 13 dwarves descending upon him and throwing a dinner party that he wasn't planning, right? We have Bingo uh, the other way around, right? He sees strangers come by and says, hey, I have an idea. Let's throw a dinner party. So again, we see how his actually his perspective is even more adventurous than Bilbo's was at the beginning. So he wants us to run down to the Mickledelving market and assess the produce on display. So we're going to see what we can purchase for his uh, uh, theoretical dinner party. He wants to know what looks particularly delicious. So okay, so we're going to go, and we're going to. We're, so we, we've got. To, oh, I got to make sure I'm pointed in the right direction here. Here we go. We're going to head down to the market and assess the wares. Because this would be a long walk for a hobbit, right? Uh, Bingo can't be bothered. Uh, So let's find the market and we'll do some assessing of what is for sale. (laughs) John Osglass asks if he's going to throw his dishes out of the top floor windows. Yeah, we'll see. That's a a Return of the Shadow joke. Uh, Conversation that uh, basically Frodo, Pippin, and, and, well, Odo have um, when uh, when they're on the road. If my, if my pie goes anywhere, he doesn't like the way that we're staring at his pie. Hugo Broadbelt's pie, 
right? We assess the pie. It smells wonderful, but it belongs to, to Hugo. Look at all the unfriendly things Hugo is saying. Eyes off my pie. If my pie vanishes, I'll know whom, whom to blame. So, okay. So, uh, we're scoping the pie, but uh, Hugo doesn't appreciate it. So, let's look around here. What else do we have? Something in a bucket over here. A tub of taters. There we are. A tater tub. Let's look at the taters. And particularly good taters here. Uh, they would be very fine boiled master stewed. So there we go. We even have uh, some simple recipe ideas. Uh, what's this here? Crate of vegetables. Let's check out the veggies. Okay, they, uh, a selection of greens looks tasty. Okay. And what's the apples? Crates of apples. Okay, let's assess the apples. Ripe, firm, and delicious. Okay. All right, so we have to report on these important matters back to bingo. So let's mount back up, head back to bingo, and let him know what looks good in the market here today. So we'll head through. I'm stuck. There we are. Okay, right past the big carved statue of the discoverers of the Shire and their mom. And now we'll leap over fences and we'll go. We look like a like a like an English fox hunt here. Leaping over fences, breaking down hedges, galloping over fields. Okay, bingo. Things look great. It did capture my fancy. I think uh, it looks pretty good. Um, that is both a wonderful thing and a pity because it makes it very difficult to decide what to serve at my party. I see you are hoping for help of that kind. I need more than just an account of the ingredients. I need a cookbook. There is a library in the Great Smiles. Uh, would you mind terribly a quick trip to the library to check out a cookbook on my behalf? Perhaps leafing through such a book would give me a good idea of what to serve. Okay, so we're going to head over to the Great Smiles in Tuckborough and find a recipe in the cookbook. Now, uh, it is uh, interesting, of course, that he's sending us to Tuckborough, as, first of all, Tuckborough is far away. Bingo Boffin can't be bothered even to come down to the market, uh, much less, apparently, is he going to go all the way to Tuckborough, which is really quite a fur piece uh, from Mickle Delving. Now, of course, I was, I've was i been talking about... Um, right here, I know I'm going the long way around... Lots of people on up ahead who took the shortcut there. Um, but um, uh, anyway, the um, one you know, I was talking about how big the world is in Middle Earth and how you have to remember that you can't just uh, you know get from one place to another instantly, and you've got to remember the days and weeks and months and even years that it takes to travel any significant distances uh, in Middle Earth. Well, playing Lotro will not enhance that perception of Middle-earth. Uh, it's, of course, one of the things which is most persistently unrealistic, of course, and untrue to the books. If you want to ask, like, what what, what one way has, uh, you know, is, is the Lotro world least faithful in its representation of Middle-earth, of course, the, the primary answer has to be the scale. Obviously, it doesn't give any real sense of the scale of Middle Earth, and that's very understandable. I mean, you wouldn't really want to play a game where you had to spend a month just traveling from one spot to the next. Um, so, of course, the scales are quite small, and it 
takes no time at all to gallop from, uh, I mean, it took us only a matter even to walk in the form of a chicken. It only took me, uh, what, five hours or so to walk from Nickel Delving all the way to Minas Tirith, uh, even on my, my waddling little chicken legs. Um, and that's just the way of the video game world. So let's see, Donamira. Donamira took librarian. Yes? Can I help you find something in particular? Yeah, cookbook. Uh, and she says, there's no day that cannot be brightened with a tasty meal shared by friends. So, okay, so we're going to look. Uh, let's see. i got to look at the shelf here. Did I, oh, yeah, there we got to wait for the books to respawn. Okay, I'm, I'm checking out the cookbooks. Or, no, they're being checked out, but hang on. I, okay, i got to wait again for the books to respawn. <laughs> And I, I thought I could just click on the shelf, but no, I actually have to wait for books. Okay. All right. Picked up a book. She smiles and writes down my name on a piece of parchment. This is the lending library, right? We don't want to be the subject of satirical gifts about uh, being a prodigious borrower of books and being worse than usual at returning them. Um, okay, so we come to the library, ultimately the library of the old Took himself, Hey, Paladin. Thane Paladin, as we were discussing your name earlier on. Um, but, um, okay. Why Tuckborough, right? It's interesting that Bingo chooses Tuckborough as a place to send us in order to get his, um, uh, in order to get a cookbook for his adventure. Um, one reason for this, I think, you know, one, one, one thing that we can see here all right, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll go over land. Um, head out the straight way towards Mickledelving, I guess. Not go around by the whole road. Anyway, um, one uh, one reason for this is that it's it's kind of prestigious, right? We know that Tuckborough is sort of the traditional center of the Shire. It's uh, uh, it's the, where the Thane lives. It's got a big library, which, the, you know... Mickle Delving doesn't have a library, right? So, of course, we are being sent to Tuckborough in order to check out a book, right? But, of course, it seems to me significant that it is from the Tooks, ultimately. Uh, that, you know, it, it's, it is Tooks that are going to be the impetus of Bingo's adventure. Um, and this, of course, is another parallel between Bingo, Boffin, and, uh, and Bilbo. Right? That uh, Bilbo... It was Bilbo's took side, uh, which uh, wins the battle with his Baggins side briefly there, right? Though he comes to regret it later on um, in his uh, in his sitting room there in Bag End. Um, Bingo doesn't have a took side exactly. He is um, uh, he seems to be one hundred percent boffin, and yet he uh, it, it's going to be from Tuckborough that uh, you know. The trouble comes here. All right, so we return to Bingo with his cookbook. See that cook this on Bingo. looks like just the thing. Wait, what's this? And out of the book, the cookbook, a folded parchment falls, and it's a map. Someone left a map in the cookbook, and the Barrow Downs, the Weather Hills, the trolls, the Stone Trolls Glade. 
look at these little pictures. Do you think these are real places? Um, and at first he puts it aside, right? I can't, I've, I've got a party to plan, uh, and he tells you to bring the map to the Matham house. He doesn't need it, and he doesn't want it, right? So he sees the map, he's interested in it, but he rejects it, right? He's going he's, he, he's gonna to push it aside and focus on throwing his party, because that is uh, what's going to break him out of, uh, out of his, uh, his, his normal life, right? Um, but again, this is a Turkish map, right? Um, a map from an adventurous Turk who clearly has been, well, as far as the Trollshaws, anyway, right? Um, okay. So we've got to take, so we're supposed to take it to the Matham House, because the Matham House is where you take stuff that you don't really want or need, right? Um, it's interesting. He doesn't want to lose it, uh, you know, it seems like a thing that should be collected. The Matham House, it's easy to think of the Matham House as a, as a museum, right? And it, it kind of is a museum. Um, but it's... I don't know. Museum makes it seem sort of more grand and important than the Matham House in Mickle Delving really seems to be. Um, things seem to go to get left here and to collect dust and people don't really seem to think all that much of them. So let's uh, let's talk to um, Brombard Foxtail. Tell him we have this map. Good day. Yeah, so we have this unloved and unwanted object with no place to go but cannot bear to throw it away. Hand it over and I will make sure it joins other Mathams of its type in my keeping. Right? That's that's Foxtail's uh, um, uh, description. Right of what the Matham house house is for the the house for unloved and unwanted objects that have nowhere else to go and you can't bear to throw away. Right, Brombard extends his hand to receive the map, but then something catches his eye and he pauses. Perhaps I spoke too hastily. It appears that there is a claimant for this Matham after all, and he has run here at great speed to recover it. And there comes Bingo running up behind, and there he is kneeling in the midst of the crowd, down there on one knee, panting. Right? <laughs> it's, and I'm trying to target him in the middle of the crowd. There we go. All right. I changed my mind. I do not want that map to gather dust inside the map. He's rescuing the map from the Matham house. Right? First impulse, put it away. Right? I acknowledge that it's a curiosity. It's an interesting thing to look at. Let's put it in the Matham House so that other people can look at it if they want to. But nevertheless, the Matham House is a place to shove things aside. The Matham House contains things like it used to contain myth uh, the Mithril Coat, right? Curiosities, maybe, but things that aren't really a part of Hobbit's normal lives, right? Daily lives. And he decides, Bingo has made the decision uh, that he wants to learn more about the places it depicts. I want to wander the weather hills, walking stick in hand. I want to cross the last bridge and see what lies beyond. I want to see Rivendell. Are there really elves there? I will keep the map, Narnian, and I will use it to chart my adventure. Let us return to my hobbit hole and make some plans, my inspiring friend. 
Um, now, no, notice again, if you read carefully, not just read carefully the quest text, but read carefully Tolkien's books, you can see the references that are being made here. I want to wander the weather hills, walking stick in hand. His reference to the walking stick recalls chapter one of The Hobbit. Now, Bilbo Baggins used to go out walking a lot, and he would go out with a walking stick. The reference to the walking stick um, uh, for Bilbo in chapter one, it's uh, that when those 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 Tookish thoughts, those dwarf-like thoughts, are stirring up within him, and he begins to imagine himself wearing a sword instead of a walking stick. Right? So, walking stick was normal for Bilbo. Bingo doesn't even go walking, but like Bilbo used to do. Bilbo loved maps, too, of course you may remember, and had a map with uh, his favorite walks marked in red hanging in his in his hallway. But he never imagined going out wearing a sword instead of a walking stick, right? And here's Bingo now imagining himself with a walking stick wandering the weather hills, right? Uh, So there he is, like, this is... Now, so notice, like Bilbo, he doesn't have any real sense of high adventure. Um, Bilbo imagined having a sword, but he didn't imagine actually using the sword, right? Um, And when the thought of real danger comes in, uh, he faints dead away, right? Uh, When uh, Thorin is giving his speech about how some of them may not return, um, uh, he he passes out, right? Bingo isn't even gone as far as swords, right? He's... um, uh, he's, 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 it's, for him, it's a step forward just to think about the walking stick, right? And to be finding these places on the map. But that's still a really big step for Bingo, right? The other reference, of course, is to the passage we were just looking at tonight. I want to see Rivendell. Are there really elves there, right? Um, like Sam and like Frodo, Bingo, too, seems to have been infected with stories of elves, Right, he's curious about the wide world, and this curiosity has been inspired by this map, as he can see the physical uh, sort of, uh, you know, the sort of evidence of the of the stuff that is outside the map and beyond the. Sh- you know, most maps in the Shire, uh, remember, we're told only show white spaces beyond its borders. Right, so here's a map with more than white spaces, and it makes him think. He also has heard stories about elves. Remember, even Ted Sandyman had heard stories about elves and dragons. The difference was Ted Sandyman didn't believe them, right? Sam is proud of believing them. But uh, uh, but Bingo clearly believes them too, or at least wonders about them, right? And finds the idea, and the idea of us going along with him to Rivendell to be inspiring, right? And that's 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 pretty cool. Um, so yes, Marielle says uh, the you know, the adorable bingo of the lamentable haircut. I agree, his hair is kind of funny looking. You have no idea where your feet will get swept off to. Exactly. He's so what what we are seeing here, right, is yet another hobbit being swept off his feet onto the road. Here he is kneeling on the on the road, right, who's one of whose tributary went past his door. Um, I love the way that they treat this. Um, this this questline I actually find very typical, though actually more thoughtful than many, um, of uh, of how carefully they read the text. I've always been so impressed by the by the careful close reading of Tolkien's text um, by the Lotro folks. They are 
excellent readers. They pay really close attention to, 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 to all the words, and you can hear references to these different passages and lines popping in at various points. Um, Bingo and the parallel that he is with Bilbo, he's not identical to Bilbo and in very different circumstances and with some different motivations, but the parallel between Bingo and Bilbo is a really interesting one that stretches out for quite some time uh, as Bingo goes off um, on his uh, on his journey. So, all right, uh, we are running late. Um, I was uh, I was originally sort of hoping to uh, to get as far as um, uh, to to get a little further in in Bingo's quest. Um, uh, he he eventually goes off and uh, uh, learns how to swim, which is one of my favorite instances in the Bingo quest chain. Um, but um, anyway, we're not going to be able to get there tonight. Um, but uh, great to see. The Bingo Boffin, Exhausted Runner, I love his titles. Uh, Bingo being swept off his feet and beginning his adventure. Love how they treat that. Thank you, everybody, for joining me tonight. Um, Maven, remind me, which uh, which uh, server are we on next week? We're on Crick Hollow next week. Crick Hollow again next week. Great. Yes. Okay. Yes. So we're gonna we're on we're gonna be on Crick Hollow next week. Regular time, right? The, the evening time, time, not the early yes. time. Yep. Crick Hollow next week. Um, so uh, we'll look forward to j- joining you there. We're going to be, as I said, moving on in Chapter 3, definitely looking at the pursuit of the Black Riders and what we can learn about that. Uh, uh, and so I look forward to talking about that. Thanks again uh, to the Sons of Numenor for hosting us tonight and uh, uh, for the procession coming in and, uh, uh, and, and all your assistance here this evening. And I will look forward to catching up with everybody again next week. Don't forget, tomorrow night, Return of the Shadow class, we're going to be looking at the second draft of um, the ancient history chapter of, uh, of Chapter 2 of the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, so, um, so that should be fun. We'll, we, will, we will be uh, 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 looking at that, the second draft of that tomorrow night, and then Chapter 3 next week. Uh, Thanks very much, everybody. And oh, Mariel, I'm not 100% sure where the field trip is going to be, um, but it's not going to be a high-level field trip. You don't have to worry about that. I believe we'll be in the Shire next week. So, um, All right. Thanks very much, everybody. Good night now.